Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I am Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. It's our second episode. Second episode. Feels like the first episode, though, because Why? anyone who reads the Morning Brew newsletter saw the top blurb today. We we promoted it at the top of the newsletter. Yeah. So for any new people joining us, uh, welcome. Welcome. We're super glad to have you. Yesterday we did some warm-up tosses and now we're coming into the actual show. Yeah. Any highlights from the launch day? Well, I did hear from a lot of friends who texted me and said it was they, – they remembered who I was, first of all. <laughs> um, not that I'm a big podcast star, but <laughs> no, they said it was great and I knew they were going to say that anyway. So I pushed back and said, okay, but you were going to say that anyway. T- give me some actual feedback. And? Radio silence. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe you need better friends or they're just too nice to you. They're too nice or they just don't want to put in the work to actually give us feedback. My best feedback came from my grandma Uh, because she's always right about everything. And she said she liked it. And she especially liked all the facts that Neil had. So maybe a lot more today. Maybe she likes you more than me, but that's okay with me. All right. Uh, Speaking of facts, uh, let's ride with the show. Let's ride. I know. Where did I come up with that? I guess Russell Wilson. Broncos Nation. Let's ride. Oh, God. Brew Nation. Let's ride. All right. Let's go from Denver to Washington, D.C., where there's a huge Supreme Court case that's going on. It's about Section 230, and it could decide the future of the Internet. Not a big deal. High stakes. I've heard a lot about Section 230. It's been in the news for for a while, but uh, I'd love to hear you lay it out. For I'm going to mansplain it to you, Toby. Okay, I need it. Thank you. <laughs> so ask questions along the way, and I hope our listeners will also uh, ask questions in the comments or whatever. But Section 230 is it's 26 words that were written in 1996, and they're crucial for protecting internet companies from the stuff that you or I or any uh, anybody else posts on their platforms. Okay, so it led to the formation of these mega companies like Facebook, yes because Twitter, there's Google. no way that Facebook or Google or YouTube can possibly moderate or police every single thing that is posted on their platforms like YouTube you know how many hours of YouTube are posted in a single second right so it kind of shields them from taking responsibility you know from, from the content yeah right so a bit. It, it basically creates a distinction between publishers like morning brew and newspapers and internet companies which are more like telephone companies so if I call you up over the phone and we hatch a plot to, you know, kidnap... Steal the, the Declaration of Independence. Cannot, steal the Declaration of Independence. The Verizon cannot be held liable in court. Basically, if Section 230 wasn't there, then these companies would be absolutely sued to oblivion because there would be so much crap, so much illegal content on their platforms. Right. And if they were to be held responsible, they'd be in court all sing- every day, and we should be lawyers. Okay. Okay, so I'm following you. Tell me about the case that the Supreme Court yes. is hearing. So this is the first time that Section 230 has been challenged in court, and it is being challenged by the family of a woman who was killed in Paris in 2015 in terrorist attacks. And this family is accusing Google of aiding and abetting the terrorist attack by recommending ISIS content on its algorithm. 
Okay. I'm up to speed now. What are the chances that Section 230 falls? Like, what are the justices saying about this this case? So people were a little freaked out because the justices are not exactly the internet experts, and they actually acknowledge that. Justice Elena Kagan yesterday said, it was a great quote, you know, these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet, which was kind, of a, which was kind of a relief because we watched so many congressional hearings recently with that they've dragged Zuck and a bunch of other tech CEOs in, and they they just embarrass themselves because they do not know anything about the internet or Facebook or Google. I remember these clips, some legendary clips legendary. Came out of those hearings. They made they made big tech companies look pretty good. Or right. these CEOs look pretty good because younger people like us, we looked at tech CEOs and we're like, okay, they know what they're talking about. And lawmakers kind of look super ignorant. But back to your question, it seems like uh, the the uh, justices are not ready to blow up the internet. Right. Which is good. They, they appeared a little skeptical. Um, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said that the court should not crash the digital economy. So they, I, I feel like they do understand what's at stake here. Mm-hmm. And my question is, though, and this probably comes down to like the precise legal language of Section 230, but YouTube does have these recommendation algorithms. So there is some line where YouTube is responsible for pushing yeah. certain content. So even though the justices are kind of hedging and saying, listen, we're probably not going to upend the internet, I can see why this case made it to the Supreme Court at all. For sure. There are a lot of smart people uh, that say that Section 230 is outdated. Look, it was created in 1996. These internet platforms are completely different than what they were, uh, you know, 30 years ago, however long that was. And we need to update it because... uh, Yes, yeah, we're just dealing with a completely new environment, right? Yeah. So expect Congress to maybe step in and and takes you know take some wax at it on certain areas, but not completely remove it, which would be a disaster. Right. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing how that is updated and seeing some of the sound clips that come out of out of the debate. Yeah. Um, speaking of kind of updating outdated practices um, from age old times. The four-day work week is back in the news again. Yeah. Um, this time, it's because there's some actual data around how a four-week, four-day work week actually performs. So, the biggest study ever on a four-day work week just ended in Britain, and the results. Why weren't we involved? First I know. Of all? The freaking Brits, man, they're doing it better, better than us. Um, but so here are the details okay. of the study. 61 companies participated from June to December. So pretty big sample size over a pretty long period of time. And the main benefits that came out of it, first of all, 90% of the companies said they'd continue testing the shorter week. So That everyone, seems like the headline stat. Right. 90% of, 9 out of 10 firms that competed in this study want to continue it. And that's not the employees. That's the employers. That's the bosses. That's, that is why it's extremely interesting. Is that right. The employers are like, all right, we're on board for this. And the main benefits was... 46 said 46% of the company said productivity remained about the same but then 34 reported improvement and 15 reported a significant improvement. So, again, you're you're managing a company, you want your employees to be productive if a new innovation in in, in work culture increases productivity, it doesn't matter if they're working 5 days, 4 days, as long as that like top number goes up. So I can see why people are like on board for this. And of course the employees love it too. 78% said they were happier. 70% said they were less stressed and 62% took fewer days off. It seems like the classic win-win. It does. 
I'm just skeptical. It, it, first of all, it, it is a little scary about how productivity goes up when we're working less hour, fewer hours. Right. And it's just a little scary to me. Like, what are people doing all day? Well, we, there must all... be so many inefficiencies. There must yeah. be so many meetings that could have been an email or could have not been an but email at all either. It, it's like a collective joke. Everyone knows that happens. Like, everyone knows who works in, like, a typical office job, you kind of go in, you maybe scroll your email for an hour, then you take a bathroom break, then you... You listen to this podcast. Yeah, then you listen to our podcast. That you should not cut out. Um, But, yeah, it it does feel like a common-sense thing that, yes, a a ton of people waste time, and maybe if you cut down the days they're working, they'll come in a little more, more refreshed. And, again, this feels like a debate we've been having forever and will continue to have, but having this data on it is... I think a step forward yeah. towards making this a reality. Um, and then to bring it back to the US, of course, Amazon tried to tell people to return to the office in a, in a Slack channel, like, all right, guys, we're going to need you to come in three days a week. Yeah. And immediate uproar. Everyone's yeah. like, absolutely not. Petitions were being signed. So you can see there's still this tension between like employer and employee when it comes to in-office working. Yeah, I was a camp counselor. And <laughs> we were always told to be strict initially and then let up. And so uh, Amazon is kind of doing the opposite and a bunch of other companies that are telling their uh, employees to come back to the office. But they were like, yeah, you can work remotely. Okay, now we, you actually have to come in. It's kind of the opposite of what you should do. Interesting. And so, yeah, more than 14,000 Amazon employees joined the Slack channel, and they're drafting a petition to Andy Jassy, the CEO. Oh, poor Andy. So we'll see what happens there. Um, we are going to move on to... Chat GPT. We have to talk about Chat GPT. I'm excited. First time on the show talking about First, the, the yeah. elephant in the room. The, the elephant in the room. And and this is a new side hustle. And Toby, I know you are a big side hustle guy. <laughs> You're designing a pickleball shoe. Yes. <laughs> You're designing a white noise generator. Yes. Uh, I know these are all in stealth mode. Yeah. But I would you consider being a Chat GPT author? I mean, I can see why people are doing it, but. Can I, can I explain what's going on first? Yes. I, explain what <laughs> I these people are doing. Reuters looked on Amazon's Kindle store, and it found more than 200 ebooks that were either written by ChatGPT or co-authored by ChatGPT. And so there are these guys or girls out there that are absolutely just like slinging, like cranking out books using ChatGPT. <laughs> this one guy said he created a 119-page novella called Galactic Pimp, Volume 1, about alien factions in a far-off galaxy warring over a human staff brothel, oh which is gosh. really interesting to say the least. But he did it in less than a day, and he said he could crank out 300 of these books in a year. I think it is the classic quality over quantity or quantity over quality thing. I do actually think that perhaps the romance genre or maybe even the erotica genre as the the title you just suggested, there is a bit of a formula to it. And I could see like potentially it is the most lucrative book uh, topic too is romance and erotica. So I could see it becoming a legitimate business avenue. I do feel like there is some human touch that is needed because ChatGBT, you can't just have it write a book and it just publish it as is. So there is a human element. But I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to hate on on people trying to make an extra buck. Would you ever read a ChatGPT book? Honestly, the less I know, the better. Like, (laughs) if I don't know that it was written by ChatGPT and it's a good book, then I probably don't care. Uh, it can't be worse than just the regular self-help books that are churned out. Uh, they're, right. they're probably indistinguishable. Right. So I'm not, I'm not hating on anyone making an extra buck. 
But the publishing industry more broadly is really dealing with chat GPT authorship. So there's this prestigious science fiction magazine called Clark's World, and they closed submissions yesterday yeah. because they were getting flooded with bot-written stuff. I do think there will be a turnitin.com. Uh, I hope everyone listening has had to experience turnitin.com for chat GPT. And I know they're already being developed, but they're not quite at that level yet. Right. So for places like this that want human submissions, hopefully a technology arises that can kind of combat chat GBT. But in the meantime, honestly, I might try to write a book and see, see how it goes. I think you should. It really, yeah. it really suits you. All right. Uh, let's move on to the post-Super Bowl uh, performance of some of the ads that, that aired at the Super Bowl. Most people see the ads and then probably forget about them a few weeks later, but I always love to check in on some mm-hmm. of the companies who ran, who spent $7 million, $14 million on ads and see how they're doing. The top performer, I think, from this batch was Timu. Okay. I don't know Timu. You're going to have to explain. I'll, I'll, I'll drop a little bit about Timu. But so in the, the, since the Super Bowl ad, the, da- the app's been downloaded 24 million times total and has over 11 million active users. So it's really, really yeah. big. It's the top app in the App Store right now above any uh, like it is the top free app hmm. and basically i like to call timu alibaba means tiktok so it's essentially oh i know it's it's essentially a, a an online store with very very cheap items i'm talking like 39 cents for like 400 Q-tips. but didn't we do this with wish it is very similar to wish in this case it is a it's a chinese company yeah. um what it does is cut out the middleman so you're getting the goods from the Chinese factory, it is slow. That's yeah, I was going to say, what thing. is delivery? It sounds seven, like you're going to get... Seven to 15 business days. So okay. what you're saving in, in, in total cost, you're losing in convenience. So it's not exactly Amazon. It's a little bit of a different business model. Sounds like something my brother would use to get a knockoff soccer jersey. Right. That's exactly... That's a great <laughs> use case. Or, yeah, if for okay. some reason you just want... I don't know, toilet paper to last you 10 years, yeah. you can get it very cheap. Okay. Um, but so, yeah, it ran its TikTok. It, it ran a Super Bowl ad. The ad wasn't even good. Like, a lot of people don't I don't remember, remember it. it. But it did say, like, shop like a billionaire. That's its tagline. Shop like a billionaire. And it's also become big on TikTok. People are doing Timu hauls where okay. they try on 30 clothes they, they spent, like, $5 for. Uh, so Timu's done super, super well. The other performer in the class is Tubi. Okay, so you just need a four-letter name that starts with a T. Very similar. Do you, you, I know you remember the Tubi ad. Oh, of course. Well, there was, there was one, there was two. And the one that I do remember was when, uh, you know, they made it seem like someone was sitting on a remote and you, everyone just sort of yelled at everyone. Yeah, it was, this is the rare ad that performed well, but also people will remember forever because Yeah, a lot of people thought that someone had changed the channel and got really mad at them. But so Tubi's now reached uh, 64 million active users. And the other thing I want to talk about is this is getting into a little bit of the streaming wars, but AVOD is ad-supported video on demand, which is what Tubi, Tubi is. Okay. That means you're watching. It's kind of like – it's almost like cable again. TV, yeah. Yeah, you're watching uh, your program. It gets interrupted by an ad. Advertisers pay Tubi. That's its business model versus SVOD, which is streaming video on demand, which is the, your Netflix's, your Peacock's. Okay. 
And people are saying that those services are getting way more expensive. So now AVOD is coming back into style, which, so Tubi kind of timed it right with their Super Bowl ad. A lot of people are like, oh, I want to pay like $60 for all my streaming services. I'm just going to go back to watching kind of, ads. Like, yeah, watching ads again. So Tubi's kind of having a moment right now. Interesting. Yeah. Toby, that was almost as illuminating as your uh, core core discussion <laughs> yesterday. Yesterday? I think it's because I also have a four letter name that starts with T. <laughs> I think so. Timu, Tubi, and Toby. That's you're gonna about to shoot up to the top of the app store. You should buy a Super Bowl ad next year. <laughs> if it enough, would help us both. If out. enough people like, subscribe, and share, okay. who knows? We might be in front of you next year. <laughs> All right. So yesterday you did you did illuminate me uh, a millennial on some TikTok trend that was called Core Core, and I kind of want to flip the script a little bit. I, I need to bring something to the table here. Okay. And what I can bring to the table is that I read a lot of stuff all the time. <laughs> you read the most news. I read. A lot of news, yes. and I come upon some crazy numbers and stats that people surface, and so I want to bring that to you and our viewership and listenership. Okay. So we're going to call this segment Neil's Numbers. Let's go. I love a nice alliteration. <laughs> a lot of alliteration, and we're going to kick it off with this stat, which <laughs> there are more hedge funds than Burger Kings. Wait, say, say that again. There are more hedge funds globally. There are more hedge funds in the world. There are 30,000 hedge funds in the world. There are more hedge, hedge funds, funds than, Burger, than King? Burger Kings, and there are way more than Taco Bells. <laughs> there are more hedge fund managers than Taco Bell managers. Oh, So that my. is like one of the funnest stats in investing, and it shows that hedge funds aren't this like little club. They are a, a really big industry and a growing industry, and it kind of speaks to something significant and serious is that there was this growing trend of passive investing and hedge funds generate mediocre returns and it's not worth putting your money in there. Just dump it in an ETF. Yeah. And, but they're still growing. That is great. Should we launch a hedge fund? We or, could launch a Or hedge maybe fund. we should launch a Burger King. I think, I think we should. No, yeah. The big takeaway of Jamie, one of our writers, was like, okay, we just need to build more Taco Bells. Yeah. That's the main takeaway from this stat. All right. Okay. That's mind blowing. That's number one. That's yeah. Neil's number number one. The, the second Neil's number is that TSA intercepted 6,542 guns at U.S. airports last year, which was a record. And it also is equivalent to 18 guns per day. Oh, my. How are people still <laughs> doing this? Like, this is crazy. They they claim they forgot. Right, I know. I I assume it's not malicious intent because, like, obviously it's going to get get caught. But, like, I mean, I get mad at someone if, like, they still have their water bottle left. (laughs) Right. Which is, like, a very common thing to happen. But (laughs) how are you forgetting your gun? It really holds up the line because they have to call the police (laughs) and they could arrest you and it's this whole commotion and I'm just trying to get to Fort Lauderdale. So, uh, yeah, I've never seen it actually happen, but, you know, 18 a day. There's actually, it's actually been growing every year since 2010 besides the pandemic year. So that is Neil's number, number two. Um, The third one, I just saw this last night and it's just Wild. Do you know who Victor Wenbanyama is? I do. I he's the next LeBron. He's the, the best prospect since LeBron. In he's the NBA. an insane NBA prospect. Yeah. And apparently they measured him again. So he's really tall. <laughs> yes. Do you know where this is going? No, I have no idea. Okay, so they measured him again. He is now he's nineteen years old. He is now seven five with shoes. <laughs> it's just that is four inches more than Shaq. It's just a shocking number. Seven five. Yao Ming was seven six. Oh my god. Good gosh. So And he's still growing. Yeah. So they're going to keep measuring him. Like, he's going to be well past seven, this you is, know, this Yao is, Ming, and he shoots the three. Right. This is going to be a recurring segment on the show. Is How Banyama tall is watch. Victor yeah. Wenbanyama? Oh, my Lord. Wow. So 
I love all those stats. Feel free to drop those at, yeah, whatever par, bar or uh, social gathering you go to this weekend because incite Neil's numbers because I just learned a lot. Um, okay, we're going to wrap up the show with a, a very fun story, honestly, out of Starbucks. Okay. So Starbucks is now pursuing these olive oil drinks. And olive oil, they think it's... Wait, olive be, oil with coffee? Olive oil with coffee. So it's called Oliato. Oliato. And essentially they're adding extra virgin olive oil to some of their like famous drinks. So you might get a cold brew drink chopped with like a golden olive oil foam, or you have an oat milk latte imbued with olive oil. I am totally for this. It sounds disgusting, but like Howard Schultz, uh, the CEO of uh, Starbucks did his thing again. He went over to Italy. Right. He saw them drinking it there, and he wants to bring it back to U.S. The, consumers. So there's the thing Schultz does, because I think there's a famous story of in the 80s, he went on this trip to Italy and saw how espresso cafe culture you know, was, was so big, and he wanted to bring that to the States, and that led to Starbucks being this more luxury brand, and he kind of turned the company around. Right. If, and then he did it again with Sicily. If, um, if it ain't broke, don't fix so it. So he's right? got to go on these inspirational journeys and <laughs> yeah. creates all these new drinks. Who knows whether this will be successful, though? I'm a little worried. Um, I know we kind of disagree about this, but it looks like it's going to add 120 calories to every drink, a little small droplet of olive oil. Do you think that's going to matter to people? Yeah. And the example I want to cite is uh, back in like the mid 2000, 2010s, fat free yogurt was like the new rage. Like everyone wanted to sell yogurt that was fat free. But then uh, Chobani and these Greek yogurt companies said, no, 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 we're going to do like fat filled yogurt, this really rich, creamy yogurt. And it totally reversed the trend towards fat free. So I do think that we've had like kind of the, the surgence of oat milk and these alternative milks that are a little healthier for you. Now we're going back to like a more decadent, decadent drink that has all of mm-hmm. in it. So I'm actually bullish on this. It looks good. I, I can't wait to try it. Um, and then we'll tr- th- there's a little bit more Starbucks news that I just want to cap the show off okay. with. But essentially, Starbucks has filed a patent for a machine that would help baristas create those highly customized drink. So if you're the type of people who orders like a double shot venti mochaccino with three pumps of vanilla, Starbucks is developing a machine that will help kind of streamline that process. It's that kind of thing that's going to get us to the four-day work week. Good on you, Starbucks. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Starbucks. Um, I think that's the show. Before we go, uh, I just want to thank uh, our amazing team behind the scenes and shout them out. Uh, our show is obviously a production of Morning Brew. The show's producer and editor is Emily Milliron. VP of Production Operations is Dan Bauza. show's technical director is Justin Orlando. Hey, Justin. Our supervising producer is the man himself, Bryce Beloff, and Devin Emery is our chief content officer. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow.